Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you the speaker presentations from the 2023 East End Conference. Organized by Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, Andrew Firth, and Carl Kopak, who also acted as MC for the event, took place on the 7th and 8th of October at the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street, in the heart of the East End of London. Mark Ripper, Fond de Siècle, Invasion Literature, and Jack the Ripper. Thank you very much. Our final talk of the 2023 East End Conference um, is from Mark, famed for his shirts. Might be slightly more muted this year. I've noticed the shirts. Quite strange. Look at that look, murderous. I'm going to talk to the rest of the room here. Um, talking about late Victorian and not Victorian literature in general, please welcome Mark Ripper. in the last year. <laughs> no one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that human affairs were being watched from the timeless worlds of space. No one could have dreamed that we were being scrutinized as someone with a microscope studies creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Few men even considered the possibility of life on other planets. And yet, Across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this earth with envious eyes, and slowly and surely they drew their plans against us. <clears throat> if you had a record player in 1978 and punk hadn't happened to you, uh, you probably had a copy of Jeff Wayne's musical version of the world, the, the, the world's at home. Punk didn't happen to my dad, who was a bit too old for that. So we had the album next door to his early Genesis records and Camel and Caravan, uh, Relics by Pink Floyd, and a lot of records by Gentle Giant, which was a particular favourite of his. He didn't actually play the records very much because my siblings and I were young and would run around and cause the needle skip. Uh, but I used to enjoy the lavish packaging of The War of the Worlds, which featured a number of brilliant paintings depicting scenes from the narrative. On the record itself and in the novel on which the record is based, nobody says in which year the events in question occurred, but in the booklet that came with the record, it said 1904. And my great-grandmother, who was still alive when I was a child, was born in 1909, just five years later. And while I accepted that she couldn't tell me anything about the events from her own first-hand knowledge, I did find it strange that she never seemed to mention them at all. She must have known people who lived through them, and not just her. Lots of my more elderly relatives remembered the Second World War very clearly, but none of them seemed to have picked up anything about the Martian invasion in the early 20th century. <laughs> I thought that this would be the sort of major historical turning point 
that people would ordinarily mention at least every so often, but it didn't even seem to be described in books. And I concluded the whole thing must have been so traumatic <laughs> there was a sort of unwritten agreement in society not to talk about it. I solemnly respected this pact and didn't ask any questions. Uh, the War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells was published in 1898, and it was one of uh, perhaps the most easily recognised of a host of novels published at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century that dealt with the invasion of England. In the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to look at some of this invasion literature in its historical context and draw links with the phenomenon of the Whitechapel murders where they exist. I'm going to try and do this without too many but I'm going to presume I'm going to presume that most people know that the War of the Worlds involves an invasion by Martians. And if you don't know that, you do now because I told you about a minute or two ago. <laughs> and that Dracula involves well Dracula, and that is the story of a group of initiated individuals from military, legal, academic, medical, and aristocratic backgrounds who set out to discover how it's possible for a man who can't even see his own reflection in the mirror to comb his hair so neatly. <laughs> in the War of the Worlds, an expeditionary force of Martians travels to Earth armed with super weapons, landing in cylindrical metal projectiles initially just outside Woking and then in an arc around southwestern suburbs and satellite towns of London, from which starting point they rapidly take over the country. The government collapses, the army can do nothing to protect the country, society is instantly <coughs> concertinaed with the wealthy, no safer than the poor. Religion is revealed to be of no practical use, food production and transportation more or less cease, and information and guidance are scarce. The population is atomized, dispersed, with people fleeing their homes and leaving the cities despite having no idea and no way of finding out whether they're heading towards safety or just more catastrophes. The impotence of the authorities to respond to the invasion is a characteristic of invasion literature. In the case of the War of the Worlds, we might notice a parallel with the impotence of the police to deal with Jack the Ripper. The message is that there are certain threats which our peacetime mechanisms are able to manage, but that we are unable to adapt those systems to deal with any threat that comes from outside that fragile locus of control. In Wells's case, there's also a political and social Darwinist edge to his anxieties. One of the characters from the War of the Worlds, the artilleryman, discloses his belief that David Essex <laughs> discloses his belief that the comfortable capitalism of suburban London has turned practical men into sitting ducks, incapable of meaningful resistance. This model promotes the artilleryman himself to the top of an inverted social ladder, not because of his intellectual or economic advantages but because of his resourcefulness and resilience. A similar theme was explored in one of Wells's previous novels, The Time Machine, in which the main character travels hundreds of thousands of years into the future 
to discover that society has separated into two groups. Above ground, the decadent, useless Eloi, corrupted by millennia of social advantage and terrified of nightfall. And below ground, the animalistic, disenfranchised Morlocks, who never emerge in daylight, but prey on the Eloi during the hours of darkness. Wells's idea was that the wealthier classes were increasingly at the mercy of the lower cl- Wells's idea that the wealthier classes were increasingly at the mercy of the lower classes was one that resonated with the anxieties of his era. In the time machine, he indicates that the division between the Eloi and the Morlocks arose from the gradual widening of the present merely temporary and social difference between the capitalist and the labourer. Even now, does not an East End worker live in such artificial conditions as practically to be cut off from the natural surface of the earth? These polarities of above ground and below ground, light and dark, man and animal, are equally characteristic of the language used in newspaper coverage of the Whitechapel murders, in which the fiend retreats to his lair during the day and emerges to feed at night. Uh, Feeding is, of course, an important reason for the (coughs) Martians' invasion of Earth in the War of the Worlds. The advance forces bring with them, in their interplanetary cylinders, some live beings a separate Martian species, almost humanoid in appearance, and as docile and helpless as the Eloi. The Martians feed upon the blood of these creatures while on their journey across space. When they get to England, they start catching and draining the blood of humans, injecting it into their own veins by way of sustenance. This practice, more than anything, horrifies the narrator of the story and produces spasms of psychotic disgust in the character of the curate, the parson on the record, even though his own religious services, or at least those of another Christian denomination with whom his denomination shares its origin, are typified by the consumption of the body and blood of Christ once a week on a Sunday. This brings us to the key question (coughs) about the War of the Worlds, which is, When Wells talks about Martians, does he mean Jews? There are two types of invasion literature that we'll we'll look at in this talk. In the first, the underlying anxieties which provoke the text appear to be strictly human and military, conventional territorial invasion by foreign force. The other type is simultaneously supernatural and non-military, invasion by foreign visitors of unfamiliar beliefs and customs, or, put more simply, immigration. While the Martians have their military technology, they hardly have to put it to work before British society splinters around them, a victim of its own complacency, leaving the outsiders in charge and the native population bloodless and defeated. Jewish immigration into the East End was, of course, a cause of particularly strong feeling. The Jewish Women's Archive estimates that England's Jewish population increased from 
from about 60,000 to approximately 350,000 between 1880 and 1939. The report of the 1901 National Census found that 135,377 people in London, which is 3% of the city, were foreign by birth and nationality, and that 40% of those, 54,310, lived in the borough of Stepney. The number of foreigners per 1,000 people in Stepney had risen from 57 per 1,000 in 1881 to 113 per 1,000 in 1891 and to 182 per 1,000 in 1901. Over the same period, the proportion of foreigners in Stepney who traced their routes to Russia and Poland rose from 42% in 1881 to 68 in 1891 to 77 in 1901. Not all Jewish international migration occurred in response to Russian imperial pogroms. Emigration from Austria-Hungary, where Jewish people had some civil rights, ran at about two-thirds the rate of emigration from Russia. But much of it did, and the allegations made by the native population against the refugees from Eastern Europe were familiar ones that they were dirty and diseased, that they did things differently and spoke the wrong language, and that they stubbornly identified too strongly with others in their marginalised community, rather than embracing Britishness. There was also the suspicion that they might be up to something, especially since they now resided in the United Kingdom in great numbers. So it's against this backdrop of native anxieties about legal immigration, as well as military insufficiency, that invasion literature occurs. The so-called blood libel, which was the medieval theory that the Jews were killing Christian children during their religious rituals and using the children's blood in their ceremonies, was an anti-Semitic trope, and it recurs today in QAnon and Pizzagate fever dreams, temporarily substituting business leaders, politicians, and Hollywood actors for the Jewish population. Although the anti-Semitism comes in uh, underneath the, the, the ostensible context, the substitution has its own anti-Semitic origins in stereotypes about Jewish influence in banking, politics, and the media. The Martians in the War of the World standing in for the Jews in Wells' allegory do supposedly Jewish things, drinking the blood of the natives, destroying their way of life, and their social and political structures. Wells admits that anxieties about space invaders were not common in late, in late Victorian England. Few men even considered the possibility of life on other planets, as he first said. In those circumstances, the Martians' allegorical function as Jewish invaders becomes irresistible. Even the physical representation of the Martians leans on anti-Semitic symbolism. The first Martian to emerge from his cylinder is, quote, the size perhaps of a bear. As it bulged up and caught the light, it glistened like wet leather. Two large dark colored eyes were regarding me steadfastly. The mass that framed them, the head of the thing, was rounded and had, one might say, a face. There was a mouth under the eyes, the lipless brim of which quivered and panted and dropped saliva. The whole creature heaved and pulsated convulsively. 
A lank tentacular appendage gripped the edge of the cylinder, another swayed in the air. <coughs> Those who have never seen a living Martian can scarcely imagine the strange horror of its appearance, the peculiar V-shaped mouth with its pointed upper lip, the absence of brow ridges, the absence of a chin beneath the wedge-like lower lip, the incessant quivering of this mouth, the gorgon groups of tentacles, the tumultuous breathing of the lungs in a strange atmosphere, the evident heaviness and painfulness of movement due to the greater gravitational energy of the Earth. Above all, the extraordinary intensity of the immense eyes were at once vital, intense, inhuman, crippled, and monstrous. Well, the Martians actually have 16 tentacles each, arranged in two groups of eight around the mouth. But to all intents or purposes, they are octopuses, or double octopuses, if you like. Uh, squids. squids and octopuses have often been used to signify the supposed Jewish plan to conquer the world. This is one example. Oh, this one here. Uh, from the Library of Congress, but originating in Nazi Germany. The Star of David above the, the head of the octopus. Uh, this is a caricature of Mark Zuckerberg, who is Jewish, published in a German newspaper in 2014. Uh, this cartoon was published in The Guardian earlier this year, reflecting on the, the departure from his position of Richard Sharp, former chairman of the BBC, who is Jewish. He, you can see him walking out with a squid in the box here. He was previously employed before the BBC at Goldman Sachs. He's for some reason carrying his Goldman Sachs box still, even though he's been at the BBC since. That, that was pulled. It's a curious fact that, um, along with the Martians appearing as Jews in the War of the Worlds, there's actually one, there's also one actual Jewish character. This character is introduced during a part of the novel which does not rely on the narrator's own experience. Instead, he's reporting the experiences of his brother, a medical student living in West London, who fled his lodgings when, when the Martians reached the end of the street. The narrator's brother set off to travel clockwise around London from west to east via north, and at the Great North Road, he encounters a, quote, boiling mass of people all heading north out of London and blocking his route. This is the narrator's explanation of what happened next. Then my brother's attention was distracted by a bearded, eagle-faced man lugging a small handbag, which split even as my brother's eyes rested on it and disgorged a mass of sovereigns that seemed to break up into separate coins as it struck the ground. They rolled hither and thither among the struggling feet of men and horses. The man stopped and looked stupidly at the heap, and the shaft of a cab struck his shoulder and sent him reeling. He gave a shriek and dodged back, and a cartwheel shaved him narrowly. Way, cried the men about him, make way! So soon as the cab had passed, he flung himself with both hands open upon the heap of coins and began thrusting handfuls into his pocket. A horse rose close upon him, and in another moment, half rising, 
He had been borne down under the horse's hooves. Stop, screamed my brother, and pushing a woman out of his way, tried to clutch the bit of the horse. Before he could get to it, he heard a scream under the wheels and saw through the dust the rim passing over the poor wretch's back. The driver of the cart slashed his whip at my brother, who ran, by, ran round behind the cart. The multitudinous shouting confused his ears. The man was writhing in the dust among his scattered money, unable to rise, for the wheel had broken his back, and his lower limbs lay limp and dead. My brother stood up and yelled at the next driver, and a man on a black horse came to his assistance. Get him out of the road, said he, and clutching the man's collar with his free hand, my brother lugged him sideways. But he still clutched after his money, and regarded my brother fiercely, hammering at his arm with a handful of gold. Eventually the Jewish man, the eagle-faced man, is swallowed by the incessant traffic and killed. The anti-Semitic moral of the story appears to be that his unconquerable love of money cost him his life. Let's move on to think about Dracula. The original novel was published in 1897, a year before the War of the Worlds, and features a mysterious, supernatural, Eastern European character with an aversion to sunlight and crucifixes who comes to Britain with a distinct thirst for blood. That is to say, Dracula does a lot of the things that the Martians do, and depending on your preferred suspect, a lot of the things that Jack the Ripper does too. Dracula's Eastern European origins are always emphasised. Anyone who remembers the short-lived horror comic Scream, which was published in the 1980s. Is it ringing a bell with anybody? My, uh, anyone who remembers this, this, this uh, comic ran for about 13 issues, I think, before... <coughs> before adults make kids stop buying it. Um, anyone who remembers this might remember the Dracula file, a Cold War update of the traditional story in which Dracula arrives in the West under the guise of a defector from the communist Eastern Bloc. Dracula's depiction in Bram Stoker's novel and his depiction in film don't necessarily match. In the book, for example, he has a moustache, which I think is not a feature which is usually present in people's mental image of him. In film, however, he is often identifiably pseudo-Jewish from the outset. In the earliest surviving movie in which he appears, Nosferatu, makes use of a number of Jewish stereotypes, <coughs> including the hooked nose, the claw-like fingernails, and the big bald head. In this film, Jack Dracula's Jewishness and his subhuman animal status are also associated. Jews were frequently compared to invasive and disease-carrying animals like rats and mice. Even in the novel, Dracula is capable of transforming into a bat or a wolf, uh, which is something that normal humans who are not like animals are unable to do. It's probably fair to say that actual vampires were no more of a genuine concern in the 1890s than Martians were. Vampires didn't keep people up at night, even though keeping people up at night was the very thing that vampires did best. There's an appreciable sexual component to Dracula, symbolizing fears not only of racial miscegenation, but also of religious conversion. In the end, Dracula's great power is that his victims do convert and become like him. 
more natural, I think, to locate these spheres in the context of Jewish immigration in the late 1800s than it is to make the assumption that Stoker's readers had deep-seated or even urgent anxieties about vampires. Now it's half-time, so a quick diversion to this gentleman. Uh, this is Roy Race, and he was a player of association football who chiefly represented Melchester Rovers, latterly in a comic called Roy of the Rovers, and before that in a comic called Tiger. Now, uh, apart from his miraculous achievements on the football pitch, Roy holds another distinction as the most frequently kidnapped person in Britain. <laughs> With a football comic, you can do a lot of improbable things. But you're more or less required to run a season from August to May, just like in real life. And that gives you a problem. What to do with the players during the off-season? For the long-suffering players of Melchester Rovers, that sometimes meant playing cricket all summer for some contrived reason, or more often, going on the sort of badly planned and badly executed foreign tours that one would think the would one would think eventually make them ineligible for travel insurance. <laughs> Roy Race was kidnapped about nine times in the course of his career, but he always got out of it, often by playing association football the proper English way and teaching the foreigners an overdue lesson in fair play. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever Race encountered other people on his disastrous tours, you could be pretty sure what they'd be like. In South America, everyone wore military fatigues, sweated copiously, and was constantly engaged in guerrilla warfare against the ruling elite. In Eastern Europe, the players were exceptionally skilled and very good at teamwork, but coming from a totalitarian background, their lack of individuality made them predictable and often cynical. They had no concept of creativity or initiative, and this was their downfall. Roy was a team player, but his style of football, even if it was rough around the edges, accommodated individual brilliance. This made all the difference. In the Middle East, predictably, everyone was incredibly wealthy, but frequently untrustworthy. In Africa, you, risk, you risked being eaten by the locals. <coughs> uh, the point of this diversion is to say that prejudices and stereotypes are everywhere, and it's very easy to, <coughs> to pick them up in childhood. The East, in particular, was an endlessly mystical, occult, and highly sexed part of the world. And the Yellow Peril was certainly an East End phenomenon. Down at Limehouse, the Chinese population was considerable. And it's from there that villains such as Dr. Fu Manchu sometimes operated in the novels of Sax Roma. Powerful, mysterious, ancient rites intoxicating drugs and a hypnotic command of white women were held to be the Chinaman's advantages, along with an impassive cruelty and an indifference to the suffering of others. When Chinatown moved to the West End after the First World War, celebrated scandals such as the drug-related deaths of Billy Carlton and Frieda Kempton had the effect of giving oxygen to an anxiety around so-called white slavery. 
you'll notice that um, with the possible exception of the Martians, who don't seem to care who's who so long as they have plenty of blood in them, uh, a lot of these popular fears also relate to female independence and female sexuality at a time when women's political and civil rights were very much on the table and on the front pages of the newspapers. Now, Fu Manchu himself is a decorated scholar, scientific expert, and in command of a network of minions so vast that it isn't really necessary for him to make a personal appearance in the narrative very often. You know that he's behind everything anyway. This has the function of raising the stakes every time he does appear. Physically, he is said to be tall, lean, and feline, with long, sharp fingernails like Dracula. And he has a nictitating membrane over his green eyes, the translucent membrane that one sees on the eyes of reptiles and cats, among other animals. These features cement Fu Manchu's identification with the beasts, and we have already seen the dehumanization of the supposedly invasive foreign race is a common characteristic of the invasion novel. Uh, his best friend appears sorry, his best friend appears to be a marmoset, and his weapons include poisonous beetles, spiders, scorpions, snakes, fungi and various bacteria. The the supposed invasion from China is therefore both like and unlike the supposed Jewish invasion. That Britain was sleepwalking towards a crisis was a commonality in invasion literature. The population as a whole is depicted as being as ignorant of Fu Manchu as it is of Martians and vampires. But the coming crisis towards which we were sleepwalking was being driven by men who were, in the end, meant to be like animals. Shouldn't we have been strong enough to resist their simple attempts to disrupt civilization? There's even a hint of jealousy about, in the subtext of this literature, Dracula, the Martians, and Fu Manchu <coughs> might not have been democratic, they might not have been interested in the benefits of intellectual and political freedom, but they were single-minded, uncompromising, alive to the possibilities that Britain's apathy presented to them, and unaffected by the moral and ethical uncertainties that were the inevitable, inevitable byproducts of life in a liberal society. One sense is that consciously or otherwise, Wells, Stoker and Roma sometimes express their disgust about the invaders as a means of concealing their admiration for their efficiency and the effectiveness of their invasion. Special mention here for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story. Lot number 249, in which an Egyptian mummy uh, is imported to Oxford, brought to life by an antisocial student for the purposes of settling personal scores. Britain was not so much sleepwalking into a fascination with ancient Egypt in the late 1800s and early 1900s as rushing in with both eyes open. The havoc wreaked by the mummy, you can see the mummy just in the background here running after this gentleman. The havoc wreaked by the mummy is society's payback for allowing its curiosity to bring it into contact with the mysteries of an ancient world. Before we conclude, we're going to look very briefly at William Le Q's novel, <coughs> The Invasion of 1910, published in 1906. Le Q, on the left here, <coughs> had carved out a literary niche by capitalising on fears of German espionage and militarisation before the First World War. 
its work is in the other bracket of invasion literature, not supernatural or religious in character, and more conventionally about war for territory. In the invasion of 1910, German forces suddenly land on the east coast of England, and overnight, the inadequacy of the British military is exposed. Not enough men, not enough equipment, not enough foresight. The book itself has some charms. The War of the Worlds isn't actually a narrative history of the Martian invasion, but rather a first-person account of what the narrator did during the invasion. But Le Cue writes the invasion of 1910 largely as if it's an orthodox history book, quoting, for example, from reports supposedly filed by the embedded war correspondent from the Times, reproducing supposedly official documents and annotated maps. It's also full of good old-fashioned British hospitality. When Malden, in Essex, falls to the Germans, the mayor of Malden, who has been interrupted uh, in the middle of a game of golf, invites the captain of the invading forces to lunch on the grounds that he thought it was just as well to make the best of a bad job. <laughs> Le Q, of course, had his own involvement in the Whitechapel murders on three main fronts. In the first place, he performed the embedded journalist role during the panic. Much later, he claimed to have seen the memoirs of Rasputin, in which the murders were attributed to the activities of Dr. Pedachenko and Konovalov, which is interesting because that was hardly likely to be consistent with anything he discovered as a journalist at the time. In between all of this, he accompanies his friend, Arthur D'Ossi, to Scotland Yard. D'Ossi, on the right, um, was a Hungarian with a fascination for Eastern culture in general, and Japan in particular, and he had formulated his own solution to the murders. And this is his story as told by Sir Max Pemberton. Arthur Diossi was a great scholar, deep in oriental law, and master of many languages. William Le Cue often shared his adventures, and when all London shuddered, as crime followed crime and stark horror walked in the purlieus of the East, these two men boldly entered Scotland Yard one famous night and said they had a theory. Very polite to them was the inspector and cunning at concealing his incredulity. You are the 2375th, he observed. But Diossi was not shaken. I will whisper two, word, two words in your ear, he said, and if you are interested, I will go on. The inspector said, certainly, and the words were whispered. Five minutes later, the criminolo criminologists were with the chiefs, and the tale was being told. Diossi's theory was that the Ripper crimes were the work of a maniac who had both studied black magic and practiced it. He proved that the murderer had in each case attempted to surround himself by a pentagon of lights, using candles in the bedrooms and stumps of matches in the interstices flags when murdering in the street. This pentagon, he believed, made him invisible to the police, and that was why he committed one murder with a policeman a few yards away. There were other evidences of the craft, notably the presence, this is, this is important news for, for many here, I suspect, notably the presence in all cases of the hair of the goat used by these black magicians in their maniacal practices. Le Cue always said that the police were greatly impressed by Diossi's exposition and that they searched the publishers' offices for the names of clients who bought these Oriental books. 
Indeed, he made the claim that five names ultimately were obtained and that the police believed the name of the murderer to be among them. Well, Samuel, Samuel Ingleby Oddie, the coroner, heard much the same story about Dios's theory with two alterations. First, that the murderer was trying to create the elixir vitae, a potion conferring immortality, one of the ingredients of which must come from a recently killed woman. And second, that DOC and Le Cue were received at Scotland Yard without enthusiasm, as one can well understand. Oddie had no time for the eccentric theories of his day, which is interesting because he was absolutely surrounded by people with the most ostentatious eccentricities. He was equally frustrated, for example, with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's infatuations with seances and fairies. Dios's theory of the Whitechapel murders was proof of nothing except that a little learning is a dangerous thing. He was, no doubt, deeply versed in so-called Oriental culture, and the search for the elixir vitae was, is, is strongly but not uniquely associated with China. But actually, the theory is a combination of misinformation and stereotypes. I note that in Sir Max Pemberton's version of the story, Diosi and Le Q actually go to Scotland Yard in or very shortly after 1888, when all London shuddered as crime followed crime and stark horror walked in the purlieus of the East. Couldn't Le Q, who had been reporting on the matter for the newspapers, have told Diosi there wasn't any goat hair at the scene of any of the murder? But if facts were not the strongest aspect of Diosi's theory, then cultural and racial stereotypes were. The occult and mystical nature of Oriental peoples were all the rage at the time, and the idea was everywhere in popular culture. Qingling Fu, on the left here, was a Chinese stage magician of great fame, and his act inspired one William Robinson of New York to launch his own career in stage magic. He did so in Yellowface under the name of Chungling Su, and created a backstory in which he was the product of his Scottish father's relationship with a Cantonese woman, had been orphaned at an early age, and was then adopted by a practitioner of ancient Chinese magic. It was necessary for Robinson, on the right here, to refrain from speaking on stage so as not to break the illusion. And he managed to stick to this for 18 years until his very last performance, at which he was accidentally shot through the chest during his condemned to death by the boxer's trick. To close by returning to the Whitechapel murders, <clears throat> we've seen that invasion literature often isn't about the invasions that it purports to be about, and that Jack the Ripper in various ways embodies some of the stereotypes which existed about immigration in the late 1800s. He was more animal than man, associated with the night, predatory, mysterious, and a threat to the conventional workings of civilization, who seem to be taking efficient advantage of the drowsiness of the authorities. It was doubted that his actions could be those of, of a British man. But Whitechapel was the East too, the very near East. Jack London, delegates will recall, could not find anyone to direct him from Cheapside to Whitechapel. Whitechapel was as unknowable as Jack the Ripper, a terrifying, exotic, barbaric wilderness beyond the scope of the imagination of the bourgeois newspaper reader. It was China, or Russia, or Egypt, or Germany in microcosm. 
a foreign land on home shores, a centre of invasion so comprehensive and unstoppable that the invaders had begun to outnumber the invaded. What, if anything, could be done to reclaim it? Thank you. I enjoy any reference to War of the Worlds, which is surely Tom Cruise's greatest film. <laughs> Has anyone seen it? God, that's it. Post 9-11 immigration in Absolutely, it really is that. Uh, also great to hear about Roy Race as well. Uh, my favourite Roy Race thing is when he signed two of the players from uh, Spandau Ballet to play in the back four. That actually happened. Any questions for Mark, please? You did? Yeah, you know what happened to Roy I, in the end? I, I've written about it. I'm going to put it on the Facebook page. What happened to Roy in the end? Um, he lost his foot in a helicopter accident. <laughs> it's okay. His son Rocky. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Rocky again. Any questions, Mark? Please. It's your last chance to ask a question. No. Perfect. It's the perfect talk. Thank you, Mark. Thank, thanks, Adam. Thanks for that. Thanks. Thanks. And that was Mark Ripper at the 2023 East End Conference. I would like to thank the organizers of this event for making the release of the talks available to Rippercast again this year. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find hundreds of conference talks, roundtable discussions, archive recordings, and author interviews, all about the Whitechapel murders and Victorian true crime. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.